0: Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. Our guest today is TJ Nahigan, co-founder of Base 10 Partners, a San Francisco-based early stage firm focused on investing in companies that help automate the real economy. The firm currently has over $600 million in assets under management and has invested in companies such as Figma, Notion, Brex, and Plaid. Prior to starting Base 10 with his partner Ade, TJ was the founder and CEO of Jobber, And Prior to that, he worked in investment roles at Excel and Summit Partners, as well as Co2, where he helped launch the private investing efforts of the firm. Having known TJ since the early days of Base 10, it was so fun to go back in time to hear the origin story of the firm, how they've evolved using automation to drive better outcomes, and how they think about navigating the current markets to drive alpha for their investors. Without further ado, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. TJ, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for uh, being on. Thanks so much for having me, Samir. There's so many threads I'm going to pull on during this uh, entirety of this conversation, but let's actually start from the beginning. You've worked at a number of firms, including some iconic ones like Two and Summit and others, but how did you first get into investing?
1: I grew up in an entrepreneurial family, which is what got me into business uh, in the first place and then graduated uh, with a finance degree in the middle of the financial crisis, which <laughs> many would say was was just awful timing, but it ended up being probably the luckiest thing that's ever happened to me because it actually brought me out to Summit Partners in the Bay Area uh, in early 2009, just as um, the world was starting to emerge from that financial crisis. And Venture went on a significant change starting then. Uh, in 09. there were, you know, Twenty to thirty different venture firms, all kind of cobbled around Sand Hill Road and Palo Alto. I was at one of them, so I was lucky. And if you look at the landscape today, it's 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 meaningfully different. And you know, there's a, a number of reasons why, but you know, platform shifts like mobile, social, et cetera, have enabled so many companies just to grow to to be so much larger than than I think anybody had ever expected.
0: You know, it's interesting. You started your career. Right after that global financial crisis, which actually what turned out to be one of the best times to start investing, it also came several years after AWS redefined what it meant to develop software, and certainly the the iPhone the year after. I look at your career, and you've been at firms that are both later stage and early stage. And I always think about when people start firms. You know, it's like a blank sheet of paper that you're staring at. And you have to figure out an ethos, an operating model, an investment thesis. If you have a partner, you have to have a shared vision of what the firm is going to be. But looking back at your experiences, whether it was Excel, Co2, Summit, oftentimes there's things that you want to pull from those firms and there's things that you don't want to pull from them, those firms. What exactly was that mental model for you as you were sitting with Ade in the early days of saying, this is the type of firm we're going to build together?
1: First of all, I, I feel so you know lucky and, and fortunate to have gotten to work at, at Summit, Excel, co and then later actually become an entrepreneur and, and, and start a business called Jobber. because uh, those all, as you mentioned, totally shaped uh, my experience. Each of those firms is, is great in their own right and you know, will be longstanding firms. When I look back on it, what we've done with Base 10 is we've tried to pull the best of those places for the opportunity that we feel like we're going after. And at Base 10, just just, uh, for those in the audience that don't know, we're focused on automation for the real economy or problems for the 99%. And we started out in 2017, set up to uh, invest uh, at the early stage and now at the late stage into some of the largest trends that are shaping the real economy, uh, leveraging technology. When Ada and I sat down to start Base 10, you know that was was really the most important thing was figuring out that what, right? Like what are what are we going to do and what are we going to be? How was also really important, and I would say that's where experience uh, at those different investment firms and being an entrepreneur um, has helped us significantly. And so we've invested from the early days in building out a research process uh, that we think is unique and differentiated, and really helps to win both in the real economy but also in this new venture landscape that is uh, markedly different than the 2009 venture landscape. The way that works is we summarize it by saying we do very much trend-based research, like a hedge fund, so very similar to what Code2 will do. We do outbound, and we're proactively reaching out to the best companies in a given trend. Uh, very much like growth or private equity firm. This is very much like a Summit Partners, an Excel, or an Insight, where a few of my colleagues have come from. We still invest like a venture fund, um, but this is where Ade and to an extent my background come in, in handy is uh, we do so with software and data at our core. We use workflow automation and data so that we can actually effectively manage that process and, and pipeline. Uh, and so that's really the how of what of what we do at Base Ten,
0: I'm glad you brought up some of the threads that you did pull from some of these other firms in instructing how you fill out that blank sheet of paper in terms of the vision. What also struck me is that your experience—you know—you had some experience starting a company and being a founder, which Ade I know was an investor in the company. But a lot of your time pre-Base Ten was actually on the investing side. I think Ade is almost reversed in that he he spent time at Workday Ventures but really was a serial entrepreneur. And oftentimes when you have those two backgrounds with such extensive experience, both on the operating and investing side, it brings some really interesting ways that you can build a firm and help founders. There's the off balance sheet also that I also think about, which is a function of looking at somebody and saying, not only are they good from a complementary standpoint because they've had operating experience, but they have a shared set of values. I've seen a lot of funds, you know, get with two partners that have just met each other and they, you know, you have a high risk of partner divorce over some period of time. How did you feel comfortable the two of you were the right people? And what were some of those discussions that got you to the point where you said, hey, we have a shared vision, we can do this together?
1: You know, I was, uh, again, very fortunate in in the fact that I actually got to meet Ade well before starting base 10. Uh, I, I just started a business called Jobber, which actually was really uh, informed from my time at, at CO2, where um, I helped start our, our first private investment fund, Kona One, and was leading a lot of our work on mobile investing. And we essentially built a, a, a mobile app in the job space called, called Jobber. Ade became one of our first investors in that business. So, Ade, as you mentioned, Samir is entrepreneur turned investor. I'm the opposite. I'm an investor-turned-entrepreneur. Ade, ironically, was my VC. <laughs> uh, he ended up being by far the most helpful VC that we had, but he also quickly realized that I had an investment background, um, and he was ramping up his both personal investing and work at Workday Ventures, which he had started, and um, started pinging me with regularity around different investments. And so that's what brought us closer and closer together. By the time uh, we, we we had scaled and, and sold Jobber, Ade and I had become quite close and thinking uh, about starting you know, a new, a new venture fund and what we thought would be the most impactful megatrend over the next 20 years of automation and, and the real economy. And the thing that was most compelling to me about partnering up with Ade and vice versa is just how, I would say, unique and special he was on so many different aspects. And then how mission, uh, values, and work ethos aligned we were. And you know you've had a number of amazing guests on the show, Samir. I think almost everybody will tell you starting a venture fund is no small feat. <laughs> being an investor actually doesn't really help uh, much in starting a venture fund. Uh, ironically, being an entrepreneur does. Uh, and so going from zero to one, honestly, like the the number one thing that that we needed was was grit and a mindset of being able to teach ourselves and learn how to do things. And I saw that uh, with Aude massively. Ade is is just so incredibly unique in so many different ways, but also the skill set is is very complementary to mind. Uh that, you know, when I was setting out on this hopefully, you know, 50 plus year journey with base 10, the the most important thing was, you know, who I who I was gonna be doing that with. Uh and so that made it easy to make that decision, despite, you know, a number of other very interesting uh opportunities to to potentially pursue. Well,
0: I, I think you pointed out something that I remember when you started Base Ten, and you and I met pre-Fund One when you were st- starting to get into the fundraise, and we'll get into that in a second. And it really is building a company from scratch, You're writing checks versus code, certainly. So that's a little bit different from a from a software company. But there are all of these elements that can be quite scary when you're starting a firm. You had historically worked at you know really well established firms that in many cases had been around for decades with astounding success. What was the internal calculus that got you when you decided to go back into investing to actually go down this path of starting something from scratch versus what you had done in your past, which is work at these large firms where you can spend all your time really focusing on investing?
1: I was fortunate and lucky to have the opportunity to go back to some of those firms. and you know, there's When I started there, they may not have been as, as large as they are today, I think co grown 10 plus times since then. And Excel has also grown tra- dramatically. I think part part of it was was really um, a huge opportunity and the belief that there was a change coming into venture. Uh, so I think that was one thing that we did get right, that the venture landscape would change. And two, that, that a new type of firm was needed. Three, and again, the most in- important thing was just who I was going to be doing that with. Uh, and did we have values and mission and work ethos alignment on that. And so that was the, the main uh, calculus for, for us. I think if I was honest with myself and I knew how hard it would be, um, to actually, you know, get started, it would not have been as easy of a decision. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but you know, now four and a half years, uh, later, since we got started in, in 2017, it, it, it definitely, uh, was the right decision.
0: Well, speaking of degrees of difficulty, oftentimes the most difficult thing to do is get that first fund off the ground, getting to a first close. And at the risk of bringing back a traumatic event that you experienced in fundraising, tell us how you engineered that first fundraise and how you approached it. What was it like? And what do you think now looking back, you got right and what you get wrong? a
1: ton a ton ton of ton of learnings uh from the early days and samir you had a front row seat to this (laughs) when we were working working together we were um fortunate our our first fund our our target was 100 million dollars to do seed and series a investments uh, in a relatively concentrated portfolio focusing on automation for the real economy our initial strategy was to get to a first close um so that we could could get started and so we were fortunate enough to find two groups uh, that we ended up going deep with and really just took a bet on us. Um, one of them it, it, we'd, we'd worked with in, in, in prior lives. and you know that that let us get to that first close so we could actually start investing. But we knew if we wanted to build base 10 for the long term, you know we would need a diversified uh, LP base and we would want an LP base that could scale with us. Longer, you know, we started proving that we could actually uh, make investments and start to build our base ten track record, uh, different than our prior track records, and then went back out to market, focusing primarily on institutional LPs that we thought could scale with us. You know, I think we were really fortunate in those early anchors uh, that we found that took a huge belief and leap of faith in us. I think that may have gone to our head a little bit and saying like, "Oh, this will actually be easy," but we had a rude, rude awakening. Uh, I think we, you know, talked to hundreds uh, of LPs really before we knew what it actually meant to raise a fully institutional fund. Honestly, the, the number one thing that um, helped us be successful was was grit, was, was not giving up um, and continuing to iterate until we found this product market LP fit. A year later, in mid-18, we ended up closing our first fund. It was $137 million. So It came in a little over our target although a lot of that happened towards the end of that fundraise, uh, after we were able to tweak the messaging and approach quite a bit. And we were incredibly lucky and fortunate to get to partner with um, some some very helpful LPs for us, uh, name one of them being Cambridge Associates, who ended up coming in for a very small amount in our, our first fund, but has been such an incredible thought partner for us as we've built the, the firm uh, and the strategy over time. And and that was uh, very impactful for us. I would say it's way too many things to list to tell you what we got wrong. It, it's like almost everything, but we got lucky and, and just by sheer kind of grit and persistence uh, and luck uh, landing in a really good spot. Uh, and I think really learning our audience, the market really over-rotating on, on being institutional from day one. There's a number of things that that actually means, but, you know, getting to work with a, a bank like First Republic and a whole list of other providers, how we actually ran and operated the firm, our investments, et cetera, I think was was one of the factors that ended up getting folks to uh, to take that leap of faith.
0: Yeah, you mentioned these two anchors that came in early and, and sort of obviated the cold start problem, which is a luxury to have. A lot of people don't have anchors and they have to fight and scrap for the, uh, the initial set of LPs to come into the first close and while the anchors are great i think the thing that sometimes becomes a little bit of a risk is as you go from a fund 1 to fund 2 if those anchors do not then come into fund 2 you have these big craters that you now had to fill how did you de-risk yourself between the funds you mentioned cambridge which increased in terms of how much capital they brought in you didn't know that in advance that they would do that for fund 2 or are there are items in particular that you did tactically to ensure that you could actually mitigate some of the risk and that you would not have a cold start problem for Fund 2, which is what, almost 2x the size of Fund 1.
1: Our, our learning uh, coming out of Fund 1 was, this was an area we needed to continue to evolve. And so I would say we you know, had time to actually build the firm and progress a lot of the things that we had started manually uh, by building processes around them. One of those areas, you know, we really invested into was LP relationships uh, and LP management. And with LPs, you know, you're often looking at things like data room and performance and talking through companies. And we were doing this over and over and over again with existing as well as new LPs. And so we took a step back and thought about, oh, how do we actually transform this experience and make it, you know, almost somewhat magical? How do you make it 10x better? And subsequently we ended up uh, investing in, in building our own internal software after looking out in the market and, and not seeing much, which has now become our our, our LP portal uh, and I would say a combination of investing into that, which was you know an opportunity to show off how we thought and how we operated um, our backgrounds as entrepreneurs as well as you know what we were doing and pairing that with actually getting some, Fantastic advice from the the folks that ended up being most helpful were people that had recently successfully started firms, uh, not people that had started firms twenty years ago. And building deep relationships with LPS over that entire time frame. So so we did that really nonstop. Once we you know finished fundraising fund one, we maybe took a few weeks off, but but that was about it. And you know I think we went into fund two, not really knowing how it would go, and sort of expecting that it, it may be the same thing all over again, but uh, it ended up turning out in a very different way. And, and, and we were really fortunate to get to work with a number of, of folks in Fund 2, almost all of which were with us in Fund 1, but, but many net new names as well that can, can help us take base 10 even further.
0: This whole entrepreneurial mindset has really come through in every conversation I've had with you, certainly during this conversation where you are building a company and there's these different components and pillars, which we'll get to in a minute, how have you seen the the market evolve? So you mentioned this new era of venture capital, which I would wholeheartedly agree with. In fact, if you look at the market today with over 4,000 U.S. firms being much more fragmented by region and sector and the type of product they're offering founders, in your mind, what is it that you're offering as a product that allows you know a firm like yourself to win? And what are the key ingredients that if you look across the market that if somebody's coming to market as a venture fund, they really need these ingredients to truly thrive in such a competitive and hot environment.
1: I think there's a, a host of, of things, uh, Samir, Like just to, to set the stage, you know, when I started in BC in 2009, 12 years ago, you know, there were again those 20-30 firms. Those were the only firms that <laughs> were around on Sand Hill Road. Ade was pitching those firms to fundraise then, and like if you didn't raise capital from them. You're kind of screwed, <laughs> like there's nowhere else to go, I think you know we we did the math if you were a venture if you were a partner at a venture firm in in o nine you needed to see three to five deals uh, a week to look at everything right like that 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 was your job in order to do that today you you need to see a hundred deals a day like it's just like it's not it's not possible like the 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 process has to has to have changed way more capital than ever entrepreneurs have more and more choice and so how do you win we do that based on really two pillars uh one one is our research pillar. number two is purpose with research it's really that process that i described to you before which is the how <laughs> which is we do research like a hedge fund we do outbound like a growth or private equity firm invest like a venture fund but we're able to do that at significant scale but only within the swimlanes, the the trends that we think are the most important trends, and that gives us significant uh, advantage versus others. It helps from sourcing uh, to selecting to selling to supporting all of those companies and entrepreneurs, which I think are sort of the four primary roles of, of the individual investor at a venture firm. More importantly, you know, I think today when capital is really becoming more and more of a com- commodity, purpose um, and really the why. Is actually becoming much more important. That that's something that that we've you know started to tackle. Uh, we have uh, been big believers from the beginning that we're solving problems, investing in companies solving problems for the ninety nine percent. This isn't by design, but those entrepreneurs that we back look like the ninety nine percent. You know, most of them are outside of Silicon Valley. Uh, many of them are underrepresented, and so that—that's what our portfolio has done. We've, you know, made conscious decisions to put a portion of our profits from the early days to back uh, some of those things that we we have purpose in. But more recently, and you know, coming out of the events of, of George Floyd, we launched our advancement initiative, which is a growth fund uh, where we've partnered with historically black colleges and universities who've historically been shut out of venture for a whole host of reasons, but are really an incredible engine of growth for underrepresented folks in in the United States and beyond. And uh, we've raised a a growth fund in partnership and really anchored by those HBCUs to invest in the top late-stage companies of our generation. Uh, We've also raised uh, additional capital from, from our existing LPs, but we donate half of the profits, half of the carry, actually back to those HBCUs and scholarships in the names of companies we back. And so aligning research and our investment philosophy process and approach, combining that with purpose, uh, we feel like gives us a a significant edge to find and win some of the best opportunities in in venture today.
0: If you don't mind, I'd like to pull on both of those a little bit, both the research and the purpose. Let's start with the research for for a second. And I look at today's market and You're right. I mean, the number of deals that are being done and the number of players that are competing for those deals are exponential step function of what they were were even five years ago. And you worked at a firm that historically had done mostly public and now is doing a ton on the private side. There's a lot of crossover investors. You've seen what Tiger has done. And one of the things Tiger has done where I have not seen this level of respect is that, yeah, they are preempting a lot of deals. But they seem to be able to have figured out a way to move at scale, at a level of speed without sacrificing a ton of diligence in the sense that they often do a lot of the research on the front end before having the conversation with the entrepreneur. It seems like the research function that you're doing within the swim lanes that you've identified as as right and appropriate for the type of deals you want to do, has that manifested into faster decision making? and has that allowed you to compete more effectively in those series A deals that you're doing
1: i think that is absolutely right those firms are some of the best at what they do and they are showing up very much prepared right you know tiger tiger looks at really three trend areas to invest in they're investing in software um in fintech and in Internet, <laughs> and there are different folks responsible for each. But that's really all they do. They don't vary, you know. They don't stray from that too much. And when they show up, they are oftentimes showing up with 50, 100 plus page decks pre-prepared, um, and have a really, really deep understanding of that industry. Kotu, very similar, right? Like you are, they're focused on just a few core trends at any given point, and they show up incredibly prepared. This was the playbook that I helped engineer and design when we got the private investing side started at co2 we very much have taken that to heart at base 10 uh, we you know felt like particularly in early stage venture there wasn't that type of a firm that was built before there was not that process and there was a huge opportunity for us to to go and and do that right and so that's very much what we've taken into account as we've designed and and, and built out our process and uh, we've doubled and tripled down on that, building out a, a research team. We do weekly meetings as a team. You know, we this is very different than, than any other venture firm I'm, I'm aware of. But we do weekly trend meetings as a team, where we do these trend based dives. Typically, we have one or two going at a time, uh, led by one person, but worked on by everybody at the firm. And so, if you've done that for a month, a month and a half, if the entire firm is working on that collaboratively, if you're uh, if you've talked to fifty different companies in the space becomes a lot clearer. Is this trend interesting? What subtrends are interesting? Who are the most uh, interesting entrepreneurs? What go-to-market opportunities are are working? And it, you know, if, I've, if I've had that conversation with 30 other entrepreneurs in the space, the first time I talk to, to the next person in that space, they're going to come away saying, oh man, that person actually knows their stuff. It's so much better than just like a random network. Hey, this person's interesting. Check it out. Right. Which is what firms did 10, 15 years ago. Many still do it today. And some some still successfully, but I, I've, I'm a firm believer that that is going to change.
0: So, a lot of what you're doing within the research function is trend spotting and, and figuring out a way to peer in the future to then go into your diligence of a company before you meet them. And, and I suspect that also allows you to be a little bit more proactive in reaching out to companies versus waiting for a seed investor to send something your way. Tell us a little bit about how that works in terms of. Allowing you to see, because you mentioned earlier, you are investing in people that often look like the 99%. They may not be in traditional Silicon Valley circles. How does the research function allow you to find those deals?
1: So the, the uh, without giving up too much of our secret sauce at a very high level, how our research function works, and it, it really starts with Base11, which is the software and data platform that we built internally. Oftentimes, we're plugging in eight to 10 companies in a given trend. Uh, let's use an example of mental health, which is one of the, the dives that we've, we've done recently. We'll plug in eight to 10 of sort of the marquee names in that space. Our base 11 software will go out and globally find 1,000 plus companies in that in that trend. It then splits them into sub trends and we'll filter out based on 30 different data points on each of those companies, which ones actually are kind of the top five to 10% what we're looking for, you know, high growth venture opportunities. That's really kind of the universe that we're starting with, right? Like You go from that, that thousand down to 70 or 80 different companies or so. And then we're proactively reaching out to those companies. Um, we've, we've done some workflow automation so that we can do that at scale with a relatively small team, but they're highly customized, highly personalized emails that go to the entrepreneurs in those businesses that are sharing some of the insights that we've already learned from the space. After we're done with our uh, dives or sometimes midway through, we'll even publish research papers on them. You can see some of this on our website. and In many, time, in many cases, we're, we're quoting entrepreneurs in there and giving them a bit more, more visibility as well. That enables us to you know, really build and hone in on that universe in a matter of days. And then by the end of, you know call it 40, 45 days, we've, we've had conversations with 30, 40 different entrepreneurs that we think are up and coming in the best uh, within that sector. Timing doesn't always work out, right? Like it's not necessarily going to be perfect timing for, for any of them. And so there's still you know some work to do where we don't have automated decision-making, which is how some of the data-driven VCs really describe themselves. We don't think that is going to happen anytime soon in, in, in this industry for a number of reasons, but it really helps us to hone in on a specific area. And it helps, again, with that sourcing by being proactive, by selecting, because you're really pulling from kind of the best of this one specific universe selling into them because there's a lot more value you can add once you have different uh, industry insights and then supporting shortly after and so that's that's been a huge huge part of our process. It does enable us to move faster. You know, if we fully if we completed a dive as a team and we see something that's just off the charts, great. You know, it enables us to move on that much faster because so we've done our market work already. Right, uh, we can do our business diligence. On that relatively quickly, we can can get industry references on on the business relatively quickly, and you know there's still some some work to do on our end, but it's you, you front load a lot of that work, which ends up being better for the entrepreneur.
0: Well, and I I think the other point that is probably worth making here is that when you are able to do these deep dives, you're getting a good sense of these companies before you actually meet them, and when you do talk to the entrepreneur, you're giving them a clear sense that you really understand their markets, you understand their pain points. And your proactive outreach allows you to preempt, which I think would probably help you from an overall investment standpoint and getting lower valuations, perhaps, where otherwise you might have been part of a competitive bidding process. You know, you mentioned this other pillar, which, of course, we've talked a lot about diversity over the last year, and including on this podcast. It's still a early progress. We haven't seen a ton of capital go behind it yet, particularly with the underrepresented managers. You have taken an approach both within your team, and if I just challenge anybody to look at any website and find a more diverse team, you've built one. With the advancement initiative, which is investing in these late stage companies and really driving returns for these, you know, historically black colleges. I'd be curious on both sides of the uh, the spectrum. Do entrepreneurs care about that? Where when you're going out to these growth stage companies, they really care about that mission where it allows, you know, you to have access to some really interesting companies you otherwise wouldn't, and then what is the net effect if this all works? What does this mean in terms of really driving societal growth?
1: This comes back to, like, that second pillar of ours, right, which is purpose. Our belief is in a world with infinite capital, you know, from super angels to hedge funds, entrepreneurs want to work with capital that has meaning and purpose. Entrepreneurs can choose, right? Right. And so why, why are they going to choose you and, and what do they want to align around? Software has really eaten the world, but I think there's this broader trend within asset management that that ESG, environmental social governance, is going to be bigger than software and is going to transform assets under management faster. As of a few years ago, the percent of assets under management that were, quote, within ESG were low single digits. Our belief is in the next five years, it's going to be north of 50%. And there's a reason for that, right? Like, Purpose-driven profit is starting to affect outcomes. D&I, to your, to your point, which is an area that, that we've started with and is incredibly important for us for, for a number of reasons, but one of them being, being obvious, I think we, we are the largest um, Black-founded venture fund. But that, that has, and particularly after uh, George Floyd, that's become a top five business concern. It's affecting IPO readiness. It it affects stock price. It affects um, employee and and, and client uh, retention and overall happiness. And so it's not just venture companies that are you know paying attention to this. It's it's the broader world uh, of asset management. And I think that's going to really affect long term change with the advancement issue. This is really um, I think the first fund that at least I'm aware of that actually structurally ties profits to purpose. And it does so because we have uh, an LP base that is highly curated and for, for a number of reasons is by far the highest ROI in, 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 in our minds to actually contribute to. Just a, a quick example, if you were to look at just endowments uh, today of, of universities, which are common uh, source of Capital into venture funds. They're they're I think the largest uh, sort of uh, LP by 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 grouping. Stanford has you know, north of a thirty billion dollar endowment. If you combine all HBCUs together, endowments are a fraction of the size just of Stanford. Uh, yet sixty percent of sem grad students are coming out of HBCUs, right? And it's it, it's this huge engine for for change for for so many reasons. So we feel lucky that we were able to. Uh, put this fund together so that this group that had historically been shut out of investing in technology and particularly in venture, which as you know, today is actually the best best performing asset class overall. We were able to create a fund structure that actually gives them leverage, right? Like they essentially get 2x <laughs> uh, back <laughs> uh, on every dollar that, that they put in. And our hope is that the fund would create unique opportunities for us to invest in we didn't know how this would go i think we we had an inclination because the reason we started this was we heard from a number of later stage entrepreneurs saying like hey i look around my cap table and like i i i need help in this area like this is actually becoming a top five business issue which is why we got started on it it wasn't something we'd necessarily planned from the beginning but when we launched it i would say product market fit was instant like it, it the best entrepreneurs the best companies in the world are prioritizing working with us they don't need capital. Their rounds are beyond oversubscribed. In some cases, they're even creating rounds to partner with us. These are entrepreneurs like David Bellas at NewBank, uh, like Dylan from Figma, like Zach at Plaid, who are saying this is a huge, huge issue for us, and we need help, and we want to do more. And The way we've designed the fund, it becomes a win-win-win really for everybody
0: involved. You're right in that I have not seen a firm take this approach But given it is a top five business expense, which I, I mean, concern rather, which I totally agree with, why aren't other firms doing this? Because typically when you see something work in venture, everyone copies it and it becomes a trend. And I haven't seen anything in, you know, the advancement initiative I know is fairly new. The fund was raised earlier this year. But do you anticipate we're going to see more of these opportunities that are created for individuals, endowments, and others that now can have access and actually, if things go right, can benefit by actually creating more opportunities, where otherwise there would be no opportunities?
1: I hope so. I think when we started the advancement initiative, that was honestly like our our goal was that more people would do this, because then we know it's actually working, and you're going to actually affect and create more change. I think you have seen ESG affect uh, other areas of asset management more significantly than venture. Venture is actually a laggard. It's a very small part of asset management overall. And uh, for structural reasons, it takes time to change, et cetera. I mean, we are lucky in that we have a a firm and a platform where we were able to move quickly on this, but I don't think we realized how large uh, the overall opportunity was and what this actually could mean for asset management long-term. We now feel like you know that the mission is 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 much larger than us, and we have a huge responsibility. But the the opportunity is just so, so incredibly large. And I think Ade actually is uh, I, I try to recite a quote from him. He's always very very great with how he words things. But he's you know essentially takeaway after seeing the reception of the advancement initiative is well, we're uh, over over the next five to ten years, we're going to get to the end of the world of sort of no sum capitalism and move into. The win-win era, essentially aligning profits with purpose, because that is what the best companies, uh, investment opportunities, etc., are going to want to align with. And in a world where capital is commoditized, that is, is becomes incredibly important. And so, we're, I would say, one of the earlier managers to go after this and do it with a, a somewhat unique model. But, but our hope is that that many more do.
0: Yeah, and and you know, look, I mean, I think one thing that is acting as a major tailwind is the size of the innovation market, and I always think about venture capital, in it. I think we've redefined what it means to invest in technology companies. When I started my career, technology was very much fringe. There was very little in terms of widespread adoption, there's very few funders. And today, innovation is very horizontal in nature, and that's all happened really over the last 14 or 15 years. So I, I do anticipate that the market's getting bigger the redefinition of what a technology can, company can do and the different industries they affect. But as you look at the private markets, because you've had experience early stage and you've had experience actually starting and working within a firm in Co2 that understood at one point that in order to invest in innovation, you had to dip into the private markets. This year, if you read the headlines, it seems like venture is going crazy. I would make the argument that still a very small asset class even if 500 billion goes in that's still 1% of the public market cap of which public market cap is about 47 trillion of which the top 6 companies are all tech companies valued at 9 trillion how do you foresee the private markets moving do you believe that they become larger and larger as the trend of companies staying private longer just never really reverses in the 90s, you did see companies like Amazon go public in three years, and now it's seven to 12 years, sometimes even longer. A company like Roblox was closer to 20 years. And so what's your assessment of the current private markets, and how do you think this is going to play out over the next one, two, three, four, five years?
1: Yeah, so it's a great question, and uh, it's funny to bring up uh, Roblox. One of my uh, nearest and dearest misses and uh, unbelievable lesson learned where... At Summit Partners in 2010, we nearly led the, I guess it would have been the Series A or Series B, which today would be a Series A. And we were off on price by 20%. It uh, goes to show you <laughs> what uh, what actually matters over the long term, right? You know, I think one thing that we were lucky and we, we got right when we started Base 10 is that technology was going to touch every industry, uh, essentially the real economy. COVID was a massive accelerant to that. Uh, I think that is very much gonna be true. We're still really early in seeing the penetration of this, right? Like e-com as a percent of retail pre-pandemic was like fifteen fifteen percent of overall retail sales. It jumped up in the pandemic, but there's still so much more market to 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 go out and build. And so I don't necessarily think of venture just as innovation. I I, I do think it's it's now essentially the bridge to the new world and to all economies. In terms of will the private markets continue to grow, it's it's likely. And I think uh, different innovations in the financial markets, like SPACs, uh, like direct listings, et cetera, will potentially help mitigate that, but probably not at the rate that companies are being built and, and that they're scaling. And there is capital available in the private markets. I do think that there will be more and more growth uh, in private companies it's you can look at the numbers that they're undoubtedly getting larger and larger before before going public i do think that will continue i think for a number of reasons that may not be the best for the retail investor and you could argue that um, there are other verticals within finance and fintech like crypto that are actually creating uh, different opportunities for retail investors to invest earlier but i do think that that, um, that will continue to happen for you know in, in some ways that is uh, self-serving for me as a you know a venture capitalist and private technology investor because it allows companies to get larger in the private markets and compound and that that can be incredibly valuable. If you look at the number one mistake that uh, most venture almost all venture funds make is you sell too early and why in many ways you have to right like it's my job for our LPS is to invest in the private markets once it's public, Many of them are expecting me to distribute that and not, not hold that. They're not paying me at this point to to be a, a public markets manager. But you look at companies like like Atlassian, right? Like you look at you look at companies like Snap, where I was lucky to be in, involved and in, in both. Yeah, you know, they've they've compounded so much in the in the public markets. At, at Excel we it's amazing. We invested we were the series A lead in, in Atlassian. Uh, we invested at in a four hundred million dollar valuation. It was a significant check. Guess what? We sold some of that along the way to firms like Tiger. And you know, since then, it's compounded by 40x. <laughs> so it does benefit particularly private markets investors for companies to stay private longer. Uh, it does take a longer amount of time to create liquidity, but I, I do expect that that trend continues.
0: Yeah, I, I do too. And there was a time, and you know, certainly some people still say this, but they would look at some of these firms that are putting in large amounts of capital at the late stage, and call them tourist capital and say that they're here now, but they will ultimately vacate the area when the markets change. I don't think that's the case. In fact, the later stage market today approximates what the post IPO market used to be 15 or 20 years ago. And I don't anticipate a CO2 or a Tiger to actually come out of the private markets anytime soon, if if at all. I think that's private market investing is going to be continually part of their overall investment thesis, given the difficulty of generating alpha in the public equities market.
1: Yeah. and It's funny you say that when I uh, so I joined CO2 when we started our private investment business. Before I, I joined, we were just a $4 billion long short tech focused public hedge fund. I joined along with another colleague and Thomas to help open our Menlo Park office and launch our, our first private fund. The number one thing was said: <laughs> Why not let these guys in? Is like they're tourists. They'll be here today, gone tomorrow. Fast forward ten, not even ten years, and Koji has gone from four billion of AUM just on the public side to over forty, split evenly between public and private, and the returns have been stellar on both sides. Uh, and wasn't always easy or simple, and there was a lot of zero to one and reinventing over time. But it's in some ways almost incredible that. Frankly, where I got started, right? Like the summits, the TAs, the TCVs of the world have actually let somebody come in so quickly uh, and take that market from them. Those businesses are great businesses, and they haven't done poorly, but they've definitely allowed new entrants and, like the insights, like the Kotus, like the Tigers.
0: Yeah, and the level of aggression and uh, tenacity by some of those firms has been extraordinary to watch. So, I want to end it with our heat check segment. I'm going to ask you three questions. Rapid fire in succession. The first being, you know, now that you've been an in, in investor and largely in, in traditional venture capital for a decade, what's the largest myth that you think gets perpetuated that's just abjectly untrue?
1: I don't know about today, but like since I've been in venture, everything is always so expensive and so overheated. <laughs> Literally since two thousand nine. Oh my god, I can't believe we're paying these prices. These multiples are insane. That's that has not stopped any single year in the 12, 13 years I've been in venture at this point. Uh, so I think that is untrue. <laughs> I don't know about today, but I will say uh, that definitely is the rhetoric that gets said time and time again.
0: Things are always expensive until they're not. So we will, uh, we will definitely see how the, uh, you know, the years ahead are in all of the folks that you've worked with. And I, and I think about some of those iconic firms, particularly folks like Excel, which have done extraordinarily well in backing companies like Facebook in the past, you've run across a lot of investors that have likely nurtured your career, mentored you. Name the investor that's made the biggest impact on your career.
1: This one is really challenging because I am a venture nerd and venture and investing history nerd. So I have, uh, I have three for you that I'll list. I would say probably the most impactful is a friend of mine's father, Howard Marks, who uh, started and scaled Oak Tree. You know, I, I was fortunate to get to, to see what he was building as he was building it. Uh, and now I get to work with him as an LP and his son. And it's just incredible what they've been able to, uh, to, to achieve over there. And it's been influential and in just getting me excited about uh, investing at all. Number two, uh, Jim Jim Breyer. I uh, was at Excel when Facebook went public. I wasn't there, unfortunately, when we made the investment, but when when it went public and um, just opened my eyes to how large technology could be. And then Philippe Lafont, who uh, I was lucky to to work for and and work with at, at Code2, who when I joined I thought was crazy because he wanted to be the largest tech investor in the world. And fast forward eight eight years later, and he's well on his way. So. Those have been the folks that have been, I would say, most impactful uh, on my career.
0: Yeah, amazing names, and you know, Howard is somebody that I followed. And there's a great podcast that he did recently on um, "Invest Like the Best," which I thought was one of the most thoughtful interviews and discussions out there. And certainly with Jim, Facebook really made Excel nine. I think it was a lot of LPs regretted, you know, skipping that one. So those are great names. As we talk about impacts on your career, as you take all these reps with working with companies and investing, there's always that one investment that you sort of look back on and say, this kind of defined who I was. It forced me to think in a different way. Either it was a miss, it was actually a success. It was an entrepreneur that said something that was truly impactful to your career. Can you think back of an experience with a company where you're like, this is when I really became an investor?
1: Yeah, I would say the one that Probably got me out of my comfort zone, but has really influenced how we think, it. Uh, at least I think of Base 10 and some of the, the really the how of, of what we do was investing in Snap, which taught me so many different lessons. But this was one of our first investments uh, on the private side at Code 2. It was pre-revenue. At the time, we invested as the, the largest enterprise value I'd ever invested into, uh, which was a billion and a half enterprise value at the time. It was also pre-re- the only company I'd invested in pre-revenue. You know, we had insight from, from China um, and particularly seeing WeChat, both the, the growth and engagement and, and as well as the monetization in terms of how impactful mobile messaging businesses uh, can be. And I would say Evan was also just an exceptional, exceptional entrepreneur uh, that you could really see from the early days. It hasn't always been a straight line up and to the right, but uh, yeah, I think I, I just checked, it's $120 billion business, so many different learnings on how to uh, evaluate and analyze uh, different investment opportunities, how to essentially act within a deal process when things go well or poorly, and there's a bunch of that, and how to play the long game. And so I'd say that's probably the most impactful uh, so far in, in, in my career, but a number of others in, within the base 10 portfolio that, that hopefully can get there someday too.
0: Well, it's interesting that you bring it bring up Snap because I I, I do remember some of the uh, the earlier days relatively, and you know you mentioned 120 billion dollar market cap. I remember when the round I believe it was IVP did prior to CO2, Everyone thought the valuation was crazy that they paid at the time. Of course, that in retrospect has been an extremely cheap deal.
1: We had a handshake deal with Evan on that round, and it went to them the next day. So yeah, that was uh, <laughs> a rough one, but we. Uh, A lot of uh, inside baseball, but another lesson of don't burn bridges and uh, continue to add value to entrepreneurs because you never know what'll happen.
0: Love the story. And it certainly uh, speaks to this belief that I think we all have, which is you have to look at these companies can really bend the arc of what the future is going to be and figure out how to underwrite the power of what is actually possible. And no one thought Snap would be a $120 billion company, let alone a $10 billion company. And so, again, this aligns even with your prior comment of everything feels expensive until it's not. This has been a great interview. I really appreciate you coming on. Excited about everything you guys have done at Base 10 and, and really tracking you guys in the future.
1: Samir, thanks so much for having me on. And I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with TJ. To learn more about him or Base 10 Partners, be sure to go to VentureUnlocked.substack.com for detailed notes of the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.